popular question we get asked regularly is, how do I know if my customers are happy with our relationship? There's probably no better way to identify how to build better relationships with your clients than by using our Mindset Survey tool. The Sales Mindset Survey is a free-to-use tool that is revolutionizing the sales performance industry. This survey utilizes competing questions and the user's perceptions of themselves to identify just how well they truly perform. Are you manipulative or authentic, supplier or client-centric, complacent or proactively creative, overtly arrogant or tactfully audacious? There is no right or wrong and the survey will only be helpful as you are honest. But then why did you go one step further? We also offer a 360-degree perspective that allows you to share the survey with your peers and colleagues as well as your customers to gain even deeper understanding of how you sell. Do your customers see you in the same light of how you see yourself? Becoming a better salesperson has never been an easy task, but the journey can be made much quicker and more effective with the right tools. By focusing on those problem areas, you will join the top 10% of sales performers in the industry and make your way to the winner's circle. Why did you give the Sales Mindset Survey a go today? The results may just surprise you. The link to the survey is in the show notes. Now, on to the episode. Okay, so Carol, first of all, I'd just like to say a huge thanks for your joining us on the Sales Transformation podcast series. Um, as you know, we're doing a trilogy on the topic of resilience. Um, we're looking at resilience as far as how to build resilience into organizational effectiveness. Uh, we have Sir Graham Lamb joining us, ex-British Army and head of the SAS. And then we have an Antarctica explorer and, and an ex-Royal Marine as well, talking about personal resilience. And then we have yourself here on the podcast series talking about resilience and coaching for resilience in particular, which I know is your speciality. But before we get started, Carol, I'd love if you could just to give us a quick potted history of who you are and how you came to be focused on this particular topic. Right. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me. Um, well, as you've said, I'm, I'm Carol Pemberton. I've been working as, a, as an executive coach for 20 years. And prior to that, I worked in business schools, consultancy, did research and wrote quite a lot about topics around management and careers, particularly careers, and also around how can managers coach people they work with. So coaching has been a big, big part of my life for most of my working life. Um, but resilience actually came into view through one particular client. And he was somebody who I'd known for a number of years. He was a very bright young man who'd come from a council estate in the northeast and had gone to Oxbridge and had come out of that and was always on the fast track. And I'd worked with him through a number of career moves and all of them had the same pattern, that he would take something on that was a stretch. He would have a tough first few months and then he would triumph. That was the story. And then he moved into a, a role in a, in a different part of the organization. And when I met with him, over time, I began to notice there were some changes. Um, I noticed that whenever he talked about his team, it was with anger about how they were letting himself down. And yet I knew he was someone who really loved working with teams. Uh, when he spoke about his boss, it was all in terms of what they weren't doing and how they were failing him. When I looked at him, he looked exhausted and he was telling me that he could only sleep if he went through really rigorous, extreme exercise regimes. And, you know, with each session, I felt as though I was sort of like patching him together and then he went off and then he came back and there'd be another crisis. And eventually um, he became ill and he was signed off with stress. And at that point, I had a feeling of I failed him. Like, how didn't I see this coming? Why was I just dealing with little symptoms, not standing back and getting a bigger picture? Um, but luckily, when he came back to work, he said to me, I never want this to happen again. And can you help me? Can you help ensure that I don't, that I learn how to do things differently? And he started using the word resilience. 
And so I became both very committed to helping him, but also really curious about well, what is this thing that we call resilience, which has now become a word that's everywhere, you know, but it, it wasn't so much in those times. And so that's what I did. I started reading, trying to find out as much as I could. And then eventually it led me to doing my doctoral research. But if it hadn't been for that one client, perhaps it would never have developed <laughs> in that way. <laughs> Well, it's amazing. It's an amazing story, actually. And it shows the uh, trust uh, you must have built up, you know, with that particular individual. Um, and I think it takes quite a lot of courage to be able to take quite a lot of courage to say, well, perhaps I had failed him, as you said earlier, and, and, and then to do something about it, which you did. It's really, really interesting. So thank you. It's interesting that you use the word purpose. Uh, I wonder if you could explain a bit more about what that word means to you. Yes, certainly. Well, I think purpose is almost like a compass point for us so that, you know, if you look across a life, any life, you'll find that there are repeated patterns uh, which have driven how we've acted, how we've reacted in a situation. And if you analyse those and you were to say, well, let's synthesize all of that down. You know, if we look at the themes how, and we synthesize it down, what's it saying to us about your purpose? So, you know, you, when you synthesize, it might be my purpose is to ensure that all children can eat so that no one has a childhood like I had. You know, if we think about Marcus Rashford, I suspect his purpose isn't about being a footballer, right? He's got a bigger purpose you know, to support children like me so they have the opportunities that I've had. I mean, I'm speaking for Marcus, but, you know, it's like when you look at the actions and behaviours that we have, you can often see that there's something that's driving it, that's constant. It doesn't matter what job you're doing or where you are in the world, you will still bring that approach. So when I'm working with clients and, and I get them to reflect on experiences they've had, and we look for themes, then we say, okay, if we were gonna put this as a purpose, and it would have a strap line to do something so that, right? Now, if it's the theme of my work has always been to offer exceptional service so that my clients achieve more than they think is possible, if that was, if that was a purpose, well, that's gonna be constant, right? It won't matter what the context of that will never change your, your purpose. You will just bring it to different contexts. You'll bring it to the COVID world. You'll bring it to the post-COVID world. You'll bring it to the good times. You'll bring it to the bad times. So purpose is sort of an anchor that says, trust that, trust that this is true about you. And then the opportunities will link to that. You'll, fi you'll find the right opportunities when you've got that anchored sense of purpose. Does that answer your question? <laughs> it's a brilliant, brilliant answer. Yes, absolutely. Um, if I could sort of talk a little bit about, you know, the, the context of the world in which we operate in, which is sales and, and sales leadership. And we host these uh, you know, quite prestigious events once a year at the London Stock Exchange. And we bring people together and we talk about different topics. And one of the topics we had at the last event we ran was about mental health in sales. And I think that sales, and I, I don't know if you've got a point of view about this, but sales as a profession kind of attracts the alpha male type behaviors. You know, it's, it's not cool for people to be seen, to be suffering from anxiety or have mental health issues in, in some way. But what struck me at this particular event is we've got a number of quite senior sales leaders talking about mental health and about their mental health and about the fact that they had a bit like the individual that you were the coach to, they had had some form of uh, mental breakdown. And, and what was very interesting is to hear them talk about how they used th that anxiety to bring out their best in the world of sales. And in fact, some attributed their success to the fact that they did have that mental breakdown. It was a factor that had stayed with them. So I don't know if you've got anything you'd like to say about that particular story. That's interesting, isn't it? Because 
anxiety can be a fuel to performance. So I can see how that would work. But are they saying that when their anxiety led to a breakdown, that it caused a reassessment? Or, I mean, what was, what was the impact of the breakdown for them? Well, it, it, it was a reassessment. In this particular case, the individual couldn't get on an aeroplane and had to see a doctor when they arrived at a certain country and he was he had this sort of huge panic attack and he realized that actually he needed help and when he came back to the UK he he received some counseling and they started to sort of unravel so I'm sure that there was you know some reflection and I'm sure that he also sort of went through a process of trying to figure things out and he he knows that he is prone to being anxious um, but he's certainly learned to live with it and he uses it and talks about it now in a in a very positive way so i don't not sure if i've answered your question fully but it it was just interesting how people you know perhaps this again it's about being resourceful do start to fit you know i've got a choice to make here perhaps you know if they're lucky enough to be able to think that way um, i've got a choice to make how am i going to deal with it i can either let it win over me or else i could learn to live with it because i i'm yeah. not sure if it ever goes away i mean i i just don't know well you know it could be that, that i mean there is some evidence that some there's some genetics in this so you know that somebody can be triggered by their brain to be perhaps more anxious in a situation than another person could be um, and it may well well have fueled their sort of performance but i think often when people have something dramatic happen like your like your sales colleague is what it does is it makes them much more aware of their processes so that they they can start to notice oh i'm going into that stage again and i now have some choices whereas before that, I imagine he was just driven by the anxiety and then it led him to an outcome which wasn't healthy. But I think that, that ability to sort of start noticing yourself and then think, what, what is the choice I've got in this moment is a really important one in terms of staying, you know, staying resourced. Um, not that we can get rid of anxiety. I mean, some people are just naturally more anxious, but people can learn ways of, of managing it. And, you know, I'm also mindful of um, Brenny Brown, who some of your listeners may know, and her work on vulnerability. And she talks about how it's actually in the moment of becoming vulnerable and recognizing your vulnerability that you become resilient. So when you're in the alpha, I am tough, nothing, nothing affects me, I can power through. It's like you're armored. Um, and that can get you through. Uh, but it also keeps you separate, keeps you separate from your feelings and it can keep you separate from other people. And she, she's done a lot of research on this to show that actually it's at those times when people face their vulnerability that they actually start to access their resilience, mm. you know, by facing into it rather than how do I keep away from it? You know, how do I keep away from those feelings that actually we do become much stronger? That's, uh, that's fantastic. Yeah, thank you. It would be interesting to hear your point of view about how you define the word resilience. I'm sure that you must have explored what, you know, what does it mean? Um, yes. Well, I looked at, there are hundreds of definitions, you know, every academic has a different definition. Um, but eventually, when I looked at them, I thought there's, there seems to be a school of thought that thinks it's about bounce back. You know, it's about you get knocked down and you pick yourself up um, and you get shaken, but eventually you'll, you'll steady yourself. Um, and there's a sort of Japanese saying that says knock down seven times, stand up eight. So there's that school of thought and there are books written around that. Um, but actually, I became much more interested in, in when you look at the sort of natural world and, and you look at how plants, particularly how plants evolve, you know, we've all got gardens where you've got, um, you know, the dandelion will find its way through anything. It will get through the concrete, it will get through the tarmac, you know, it will find a way through. And it does that because it adapts. 
right? It, it sees what the conditions are and it finds a way of adapting to them. And so I came to think of resilience as being, um, I use the image of a slinky when I'm working with, with people, which is to say, you know, everybody remembers the slinky from their childhood. You know, you put it on the steps and it put it on the next step and then by momentum, it went down the rest of the stairs. And what that means is that, you know, there are times it's the stretch in the slinky that causes the momentum. That's what the energy comes from that moves it forward. So for me, it's about saying, okay, at times as humans, we get stretched. And when we do, we don't just bounce back to how we were, we're, we're changed by it. But actually what we can do is we can use the learning from that stretch, you know, so that it moves us forward. So it's when our lives are disrupted, how do we take something from that so that we become more able to deal with whatever the next stretch is going to be, you know? Because it's largely a learnt behavior, resilience. I mean, there are some other factors and we might want to talk about those, but largely it's learnt from having dealt with, with stuff, you know, the stuff that we don't like. You know, the ending of the relationship, the loss of a job, the death of a parent, you know, the, the ending of a friendship, illness. I mean, the things which we don't want, perversely, are the things which actually allow us to become more resilient um, over time. So that actually with age, we tend to be more resilient. Absolutely. So I think on that note, we should talk start to talk about the book. But I think the Perhaps before the book, it's the, um, I think it, it will be useful to talk about its genesis. You know, where did the idea come from? Um, Beth, I wonder if I could sort of come back to the starting point, because you have mentioned apprenticeship. And I think that's where a lot of the thinking in its design started. So perhaps you could just talk us through that. Absolutely. Well, I was um, a higher ed representative advising a trailblazer group for the level six um, sales executive apprenticeship. Um, subsequently, uh, a level four was also designed. And I was having conversations with the chair of the Association for Professional Sales. And the APS have been absolutely solid and really focused on getting sales apprenticeships and, and getting the recognition that sales can be learned in the same way as other professions. And I, I said, well, you know, there's great things coming out of the Trailblazer groups, but it would be really good to have the standards which come out encapsulated with um, a book that's that's focused on them because the apprenticeship standards are are really quite different from the standard academic curriculum that you would find in a, a college or a university exploring a topic in particular the emphasis on skills and behaviors is very noticeable and to my mind some of the skills and behaviors which are being promoted in the apprenticeships are really 21st century you know they, they are about surviving thriving in the modern workplace so yes so I was semi-retiring at that time and said well okay I'll have a crack at it and then fortunately Jeremy was able to come along and help me after I had uh, immersed myself for the first draft of, of content to try and organise that into something that was, was going to be the, the living, breathing uh, item that it is today. So for those that might be listening to the podcast that don't know um, the situation in the UK, 0.5% levy is charged to those organisations who have a salary bill of more than 3 million. And this goes into a digital levy account. And that can be used by corporates against uh, approved apprenticeship training provision and uh, the training provision is then provided within the context of a level four standard series of training modules 
or if it's an undergraduate degree, a, a level six, which would be a university qualification uh, as well as an apprenticeship award. The key thing about the apprenticeship is the unique relationship between the employer, the student and the training provider. And the employer's role is critical in the success of the student. They need to know what their learners are going through. They need to know what projects their learners are doing as they go through each module so that they can then provide the support, the coaching like we've been talking about a little bit earlier on. Um, And I think that the book that you've produced can be enormously helpful for the employers to be able to kind of reference as we as we've been talking about earlier but is there anything else Beth? I think we should be very proud of the apprenticeship programs and I I mean they provide opportunities for uh, people in all kinds of roles to really be the best possible Um, and for employers I think the advantage is the student is is with you um, they are being productive as they learn and so therefore you know something that employers have always wanted I think which is the opportunity and uh, the, the government support to help to upskill uh, people they already employ and young people entering the workforce that, that they want. Um, it's a great framework. I mean, I, I will moan about the bureaucracy of it uh, at times. I'm sure everybody does. Um, but, but where you see the programmes that, that you're familiar with, and um, I mean, I've seen it um, quite often as an examiner um, of, um, of apprenticeship programmes, and you see the kind of output that the students are producing for their employers. And you think, wow, you know, this is a, a great investment. So, and I think for the young people, I mean, what's not to like about an apprenticeship? You get the work experience, you quite often get a professional qualification as well as uh, a degree or um, some other kind of academic qualification. Um, you have no debt. And so uh, it's a win-win-win. We had a um, a lady on on the podcast. I don't know if you've listened to her, Carol Pemberton, and she, um, you know, her speciality was resilience. And it's interesting when you talk about this mentor that you had, you know, in 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 the business and and how she felt she needed to understand resilience more because it wasn't a a word that was used a lot in business uh, years ago and now of course it is Um, but it's uh, it's 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 very interesting to see how people's attitudes to coaching perhaps are changing I don't know if you've got a, a point of view on that whether it's becoming more widely accepted or whether people are slightly you know I don't need a coach you know I'm a successful leader you know it's uh, it'd be interesting to have your point of view on that too well it's it's proven also by some studies anthony grant in uh, 2013 he released I study where he took an organization that was going through multiple uh, changes, like a reorganization, merger, and and he took 38 executives, and 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 the study was about putting those executives uh, through coaching sessions. It was four coaching sessions. And he would measure qualitative uh, results before coaching and after coaching. Um, and, uh, and when he measured the results, um, it was each coaching session, of course, the coaching session was really, uh, there, there was an, the whole program, there was an objective, right, uh, related to, to, to the change that was going on. And, uh, but they wanted uh, to improve the leadership skills, to, to improve the strategic uh, thinking, the, the resilience, the, um, the, the readiness for change. 
and 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 they could prove that uh, with this study there was a significant change because um, the, the the safe uh, the safe space that is provided in in doing the coaching for the leader or, or the, the executives to think the process to get self-awareness to really define where they are going to really see the change what is the real opportunities here what is in there for me how i'm going to drive my team so is that your thinking coaching is your thinking time right and a coach mm -hmm. is your thought partner is someone that is really not going to teach you something but is going to make you um it's going to drive you to think things in a different perspective so it's it's going to challenge you with questions and and you see a big problem let's slice it up right is this a real problem that you're seeing or is the symptoms of something underneath and mm -hmm. and in my coaching that's that's exactly what i tried to do i, I tried i use some design thinking or uh, problem solving skills like critical thinking to shift the thinking of the person in front of me to in a that they think in a different perspective sometimes when you're thinking by yourself you're pining you're pining so the coach needs to take you out of that mode and see things in a different way and sometimes you do there are techniques in coaching you ask something completely out of the blue right only to shift the thinking and then you go back so mm -hmm. now that you are and I, and I love the miracle question because when you are always in this, you see always problems instead of seeing solutions, right? Mm -hmm. There's some people that are, are so clear. They, they come with the problems and that's no, because I have those, but I cannot do that. I cannot, no, I cannot do that. And then you just say, okay, if there's nothing, if you have no problems, what would be then the solution? And then you yeah. see the expand the thinking of the person and then you start drawing to reality and what is possible but you need that expansion so to to focus a bit on a solution that is not blocked all the time but that's the role of the coaching is to give you self-awareness also in your limits and what you can overcome and give you a bit the growth mindset that you learn skills you have this capability that the neuro neuroplasticity of the brain right is your capacity mm -hmm. to adapt and change and in the moment you have this practice as okay you have individual coaching the evolution is really to have and, and what helps a lot in the resilience in the organization is to build a coaching practice and that people that are managing right people managers they have the coaching skills necessary to drive their teams so it's a coaching mindset yeah, it's interesting that I've met organizations who, some organizations who build, who believe very much in coaching, mm -hmm. but they would prefer to have separate coaches to, say, the sales managers, you know, that might be managing sales teams. Mm -hmm. um, um, we have other people who believe it's a fundamental part of the sales management philosophy, that they need to be a coach in the way they lead and manage their team. Do you have a kind of point of view about which of those two models, you know, might be more successful? Do you think it's best to have specialist coaches where you know, the sales managers in that organization will just focus on, you know, the sales, the revenues, the how do you coach people to close a deal maybe, but that's not really coaching. You know, that's that's just coaching on a sale. No. <clears throat> but they have a separate, you know, they have other people, you know, that, that do the coaching or do you believe that sales managers need to have coaching as part of their sort of uh, skill set? You know that they is a combination. It's a combination, a combination of, of the two, because okay. any people manager need to have coaching skills. Yeah. You need to be able to listen to your people and okay. really drive their thinking. So yeah. you need coaching skills, but it's also important to have external specialized coaching for um a, a matter of trust and yeah because there's your... certain things you'll you won't want to discuss with your manager because it will be a, a perceived um perhaps weakness and it, yeah. yeah and and so on so i can understand that's an interesting it's not the same opening thought. 
there's yeah, a draw line, right? And yeah. a specialized external coach has a Chinese wall, and mm. we 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 sign so many confidentiality agreements, right? So yeah. you can you need to be able to open your heart no matter what, and that's it's important when you're choosing your coach that you have this affinity that you you think with that person i can really open up i really trust because you you mm -hmm. need to be vulnerable you need to open yeah. yourself because it's a self-discovery for you and mm. needs to be yes i love this idea of um of uh, safe space that you mentioned kind of earlier we we um and it's one of one of one of the most favorite talks we've had at one of our gst events uh, in london uh, where we had um the curator of a museum, Museum of Failure. I don't know if you've heard about this museum. It's based in no. Sweden. Yeah, you should look it up. It's amazing. And and uh, it was on the it was on BBC News. You know, one morning, and 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 they say yes, uh, this Museum of Failure has opened up, and uh, you know that it was there exhibiting products that people have tried to take to market which have failed. You know, so they were they would exhibit the Google glasses and the um, uh, plastic bicycles, and I, you couldn't believe the number of artifacts. And I, I said I must talk to this person. Um, so I picked up the phone and I managed to get through to the curator, and um, oh wow! And we had a chat about it, and he said actually he's a clinical psychologist. That's his background. He's not a museum person. And uh, he, he, his belief is that, uh, is that we can learn so much from failure. And a lot of failing is giving people psychological, you know, safety, you know, they, the psychological safety to, to work in. And I, I, I mean, this goes beyond coaching. I mean, this goes more into the culture of the kind of business you want to run and that people don't mind trying things out making mistakes knowing that that's part of the innovation process as well and so it's a it's a, and it's this an is interesting... part of it's part of resilience and it's part of the growth mindset if you build an a culture of an organization based on on people that are doing their jobs for 30 years exact same job you're going to have a resilience problem because people are not used to change they're not ready for it if you have a coach where people are pushed and, and encouraged to try new things and to learn new skills, you have a complete different mindset. You have a growth mindset, not a fixed mindset. And then you yeah. have a learning organization. Absolutely. And I think, I think one of the, the other things that I think is, is, is really interesting is the connection between purpose and resilience. Mm -hmm. uh, again, it's something that Carol Pemberton talked about on on uh, one of the other podcasts, and and um, and yes, in that research, the, it, it, which was done with those a, a group of Hawaii, uh, children in Hawaii, don't know if you, you know, which was you know, wh why was it that out of eight hundred children, you know, about a third did really well, a third stayed roughly the same, and a third sort of went backwards, and a lot of it was connected to a sense of purpose that that individual had acquired maybe through a mentor, you know, I mean, the, these children came from pretty deprived backgrounds. Um, so I, I, I wonder how much of your coaching approach actually connects with this notion of purpose. And I, I you know, I, you know, what is the purpose of the organization, maybe for whom there may be a transformation initiative? What is the purpose of the individual, the leader, and whether that forms part of what you you know might be coaching around when you're coaching a leader doing transformation uh, i always challenge do you understand your the purpose of this transformation and your role in the transformation does it make sense to you what is the sense it makes to you can you talk me, to me a, a little bit and when they make this linkage and then you have an aha moment right it's so okay. now I understand my purpose, the purpose of the whole, uh, the, the the whole change, or 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 my, the company itself, where we are going, and my purpose in my role and purpose in in the whole thing, and then 
it's it's it, it, the connections make much more sense and then you have a kind of a motivation aha moment mm-hmm. or not uh, right yeah. <laughs> it yeah. depends or how not. they see it yeah so because yeah. of course if there's a misalignment between uh, mm. you know your your purpose and the organization's purpose then i guess that's a you know you have to make yeah. a decision <laughs> you know about yeah because what, goes what... in your core core values right yeah Absolutely, which which of course is a topic that's very close to to my heart with the uh, research that I did on on the on the doctorate. I think that you began to introduce the term, and I'm not sure if it was you or your colleagues about chief anticipation officer. Um, yeah. And I think this whole area of predictability and um, anticipation is very interesting in the, in the context of a world that you've described earlier on, which is changing so quickly. And how can you anticipate when you don't quite know what's coming around the next corner? So could you, um, could you perhaps explain that this sort of journey and, and, and perhaps this, you know, why it made you start to question a redefinition of what is the role that you have? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the O in COO is very strong, that operating today and running the business. But back to that, how do we make sure we also have a business in the future? And a lot of that is about how to drive that change and transformation and even disruption you know, to be able to be you know, continually competitive and thrive in the future. So across each of those areas, people, business and operations, we we also started to look at, well, what are we, where are we spending our time? Where do we have our skills? Where are we investing? And looking at this, what we call our run, transform, disrupt lens for each of those three areas. Um, and actually, if you want to build for future readiness, what we found is that you really need to start from the disrupt angle to have many, many different ideas and disruptive thinking and then experiment and learn so that some of those then start to be more transformational and you can drive transformation at scale. And ultimately, if you do that over a period of time and you get a positive outcome, then that goes into the run mode of the business and is part of the DNA. So, so what we're actually seeing is even though the, you know, the, the three areas of change with people, business and operations, and then this lens of run, transform, disrupt, uh, we're seeing the need to then have this sort of system that we're creating. So it's disrupt, transform, run across those areas. And we're continually learning within that system. And, and that's this, we're now evolving this thinking into more of a systems-based approach because that, that's how we can make sense of complexity and look at the whole and the relationships rather than individual parts and how those things connect um, are meaning that we can continually evolve and anticipate for the future. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so yes, we've been learning a lot over the past well twelve months now, and we've done um, yeah pilot inside SAP in one of our market units, and and as I said, been talking to a number of external parties as well. So I do believe this systems based approach will be the way to have that continual learning as we continually anticipate different futures. I think it, it would be really interesting to explain a little bit the purpose of the HBR kind of initiative that took place and also um, some of the key findings that you got from the research. So, um, uh, so perhaps you could cover those two to begin with. I've got yeah, some questions. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we, we talked about this, Phil, as well. I think we, we were looking at maybe doing a research paper together for the Sales Transformation Journal. And um, and it came about, we, we, we were doing some work with Harvard Business Review um, Analytics Services, and I, I did a, a roundtable on actually supply chain and resilience earlier this year and um, shared the, the concept of the chief anticipation officer and the, the, the system of change that we were looking at. And they were really, really interested in it. And, and we, we, we spoke about doing a piece of research to go and um, really survey and globally, actually, um, not just uh, SAP customers, but a, a broader spectrum. So actually going out to HBR's um, community 
And, and over the past few months, what, um, what we've done is gone out to over 440 organizations uh, globally um, across Asia Pacific, North America and Europe and, and asked about future readiness. And, and the research that we're just about to publish the paper, um, it says that you know, nine out of 10 businesses are, are absolutely thinking about future readiness and this adaptive culture and a continuous need to you know, upskill and make sure that you've got the right skills. That's that very much people-focused element is critically important to future readiness. On the flip side, it also says one in three organizations, so only when actually less than 30% were very prepared or you know, knowing how to come about that change. So there's no, there's no one way to actually anticipate and there's no right way. And actually the vast majority, whilst they're saying it's important to, but to build an adaptive culture, they didn't really know how to go about driving that change. And so I think it's evident and that it's top of mind. So this system that we're starting to see that's resonating and that the feedback loop into this mm. systems-based approach, I think could be a very interesting way of building that and evolving that over time. I believe you've been involved in a project that, that sort of brings together, is it three, was it three dimensions that you mentioned? Could you just briefly explain that? Because I, th I, th I think that's, that's, that's interesting as well. So. Yeah. Yeah. So when, um, when we at Inside SAP and also speaking to our customers have been talking about areas to anticipate change and the three building blocks that keep coming up is around you know, the future of work, the future of business and the future of operations. And the future of work, you know, how will people work in the future? You know, anywhere, any when, with any who. It's flexible. You know, what's the purpose of the office? How do we engage in meaningful work? So there's a, a, a big shift you know, towards that um, flexibility and purposeful uh, work. And um, at SAP, we have a big program that we call our Pledge to Flex program, which addresses a lot of that and gives that um, decision-making you know, and the control to the employee to decide how they want to work. Um, the second area of change is very much about we've touched on it around resilience and sustainability, but how do, how do organizations do business in the future? And what we're seeing now is this shift uh, away from a primary focused on cost efficiency and effectiveness only. I mean, of course, cost management, cost control is important, but is it the primary role of an organization going forward? And, and we're seeing this shift for many businesses to, to build in resilience to be more sustainable, a sustainable business, um, and that experience piece. And, um, and that's shifting in terms of that future of business. And then the third building block is the future of operations and how do we operate really more intelligently by infusing that intelligent tech as the enabler to, to free up that, you know, that, that human skills time for the more repetitive, mundane, but also to build in technology that learns, you know, machine learning, AI, to actually then evolve those business processes. So, um, so yeah, these three building blocks of change are people, business, and operations, and and that's absolutely resonating in many of the conversations that that we're having. So, I'm interested to talk to you about your views on management and enablement, and. Um, we see often two schools of um, sales management practice. You know, one school is the best way to motivate and get the most out of your sales force is to only focus on sales performance, sales results, to almost have a culture of fear, you know, that if you don't hit your quarterly targets often enough, your job is at kind of jeopardy. And um, they, they really believe in that. They believe that the best way to get the most out of people is through what we call a sort of management by fear type culture. And there's another school of managers, and I think you, you would absolutely fit into this, that is, is very much about coaching and it's very much about using information to help, like you've just said, help people to become more, more productive. Our view 
is that probably 90% of organizations, sales managers out there are probably sitting more in the management by fear seat for whom these concepts of enablement are going to be slightly um, sort of bizarre. It's nice to have, but actually I think the way I've done things, you know, target-driven, sales result-driven, not really interested in leading indicators, much more interested in the lagging indicators. That's how we see it at the moment. Now, maybe I'm being a bit provocative in this, and uh, but I'm just, you know, perhaps I'm doing it just to, you know, have a debate about it. But yeah. I'm interested to know what your views are about management, because unless senior management really buy into sales enablement, it's going to be really difficult to bring all of these support functions together. Yeah. And so, um, and what you've just described is one of the challenges that we have as um, in, in sales enablement, um, which is a good, um, which is a good challenge to have, because if we manage to transform that, we will manage to transform the way the sellers sell. And um, I have experienced what you are describing. So managing by fear and uh, being very results driven. And usually this is also driven by a culture of urgency where everything is urgent. And so you have less time for thinking and more time. And it's all about doing. And um, one way um, that where sales enablement can make an impact, but it's, uh, I would say, 50% of impact in this type of culture. And where you can have a CRO or a VP of sales with that mentality to listen to you is by providing some quick wins, which are not on productivity, but on efficiency. So what they care about, and because they are looking at lagging indicator, they're looking also at how much time my sales team is spending with them, um, with customers and how can I reduce all the admin stuff? And so this is something that enablement can solve, but it's like a quick win and in the short term. So what I can see is, um, for example, in companies um, I've been working as sales enablement practitioners, sales team were spending about eight to 10 hours every week just to look for content mm -hmm. and stay current or make sure that they were prepared for their meetings with customers. And so one of the programs that I had was let's reduce it by 50%. And then once I get to 50%, another 50%. So it means that I was giving my sales team um, four hours back every week, which is 20 hours back every month. It's a lot of time. Mm -hmm. And this, you know, improves for sure the efficiency because you have more time of sellers with the customers. What is really difficult in that culture is um, to think about um, now that I've given you time back, how can we help seller in using that time more efficiently? And that's where you need to have more of a growth mentality where you can use some of that time to help seller to upskill themselves and some of that time to be more customer facing. But the part of um, making sure that there is this accountability to learn to and to continuously improve the way you do things come from more of a growth mentality, not a fear mentality. You need to assign part of that time that you're giving back to the to the sales team to be able to absorb and, uh, and really um, grow in their profession. Yeah. If an organization invited you to come in and help them, you know, with their sales, you know, where do you start? Where, what do you, you know, what would be your starting point? If you were to come into Consalia and help us transform our sales productivity, what, what would you do with us? <laughs> that's really uh, interesting question. And that's my job, actually. Okay. Uh, that's what right. I do. Uh, okay, so 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 tell us more about your job then. <laughs> what I do is I work hand hand in hand with companies to uh, make sure that they so we work together to achieve the transformation that they want to achieve. And uh, we've just uh, launched uh, as high spot um, a new sales enablement methodology that is called mm -hmm. the strategic enablement uh, framework. And um, um, I'm very graphic in my 
uh, way of seeing things. So you're being very like, Italian there with your. <laughs> 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 so let's say that um, the first thing that you need to understand is um, uh, where the company wants to go. So our Everest, the top yeah. of the Everest. And um, this can be pretty straightforward. Something that sometimes is missing in company is um, really understanding where you're starting from and, mm. uh, and assessing where you are. So am I trained enough? Do I have the right equipment? Do I have the right coach to go up to the top? Do I have the right strategy? And do I have a, the right plan in place to get to the top? And so um, it's really important that together with your strategic initiatives and uh, the outcome that you want to achieve, you understand what's your starting point and what could be the potential blockers that I need to remove to make sure that this happens. I will give you a, an example of a company mm -hmm. I was working with. And uh, the strategic initiative was um, they launched a new product. And the outcome that they wanted to achieve was more revenue. When we started analyzing, and in the middle between the two, who is really who is the key um, piece of uh, the execution are sellers. So it's the sales team who are mm. want to need to execute on that strategy. And one of the biggest blocker of that sales team was the fact that. The customers were, uh, the majority of their customers were very digitally savvy, but the sales team wasn't. And so how can I make sure that my sales team has the right skills and capabilities in order to be where my customers are? Mm -hmm. So you start thinking about, you know, what are the programs that I need to put in place so that I equip my sellers to go to market in the channels and becoming really expert of the channels that help me achieving those, um, those customers. As you know, changing human behavior is super difficult. What we usually do as humans when we are in an emergency or an urgency, we go back to the initial behaviors. We kind of forget everything we have learned in a one-hour training and we go mm -hmm. back to what we were used to do. And so... This model works in uh, once I equip my sales team with um, what they need to know in order to go to market, it's really important I train them and um, in a safe environment where they can practice. So I practice with you, Phil, my mm -hmm. pitch before pitching it directly to my customer so that, you know, when I pitch the customer, I'm really confident that mm -hmm. I'm driving the right message. And the third piece of pillar that is really important of this methodology and um, what really helps us in embedding a new behavior is about coaching. It's having somebody who is looking at how you're pitching to a customer and helps you mm -hmm. improving the way you engage with the customers on the go. This is the human aspect. You remember that at the beginning, we we're talking about the technology. Yes, yeah, absolutely. If you have the right technology in place, what the technology gives you is a lot of data. And this is really powerful because what you can do is to course correct mm -hmm. on the go, to understand what is working well that I need to do more and potentially use this and expand and uh, educate other sellers in the same team with those best practices. And what is it exactly that I need to stop doing? Because also um, identify what I need to stop doing is equally important as identify what to, do I need to do more of. And having access to this data helps you, one, coach on the go, reinforce the right behaviors with your sales team while they're working. And so it's not a one-off, but it happens week one, week two, month one, month two, until it becomes part of your DNA. And you start using the same approach more and more. And then you to introduce something new. So methodology is really equipping, training, coaching, and analyzing and reinforcing the right behavior in mm -hmm. your sales team. And that's how sales enablement can really help, you know, embedding new behavior, making sales people more agile in what they need to do and help them 
achieve their objectives. Guys, over to you. Broadly speaking, what are the biggest shifts that sales leaders need to consider this year? So, you know, I will always focus on the people side of things that sales leaders need to consider. And, you know, the complexity continues, the fast pace continues, the, um, you know, demands from customers and their expectations continue to, to grow. And so for me, it's how are they going to support their team with all of these dynamics going on? How are they going to help their team feel empowered and motivated and um, able to give them, you know, put in the extra mile to make sure that they can achieve for themselves, but also for their organizations. And um, I think for me, that's a big, how are they going to do it? There's so much to consider, but um, that kind of engagement and motivation and support through these kind of, yeah, very, very sort of rapidly changing complex times just is, is what it's about. Yes, well, uh, of course, I, I sort of largely support um, what Louise is saying. And I think, I think the role of a sales leader is quite complex because on the, on the one hand, they need to be able to use their resources in order to, to achieve the results of today. And at the same time, they need to develop their resources in order to achieve the results of the future. And uh, there's a huge tension, actually, between those two, uh, between those two kind of objectives. And, and within the context of the market in which organizations are having to operate in, like Luis was just saying, there's so much complexity and so much change. And um, the... Um, you know, when you talk about the biggest shifts, I think it's, I'm not sure if they're the biggest shifts or it's just a continuation of things we've had to have been adjusted to since the pandemic and all the rather seismic, ch you know, changes going on in the marketplace. Um, but they, they, they really need to be in tune with the organizational context of the world in which they are living in. Uh, and, you know, trying to anticipate the changes perhaps before they happen, if they can, uh, protect their sales teams, you know, from the noise that flies around the boardrooms, you know, in these current uncertain times, and keep their sales teams motivated and uh, keen to develop moving forward. Okay, so if we're, if we're looking at um, how to anticipate and prepare for change what would you say business leaders need to need to do i think louise is best place for this one <laughs> so how to prepare them for change um, mm. i think they certainly need some training and understanding about the process of change and, and what's so they can understand the, the transition that they're going through as they experience change so I think that's a really important thing to do to help people appreciate that I mean some people love change some people adore change and just think of this as a real opportunity and they embrace it and they can't wait and they want to make more change happen and then other people are just you know they like the way they work they like where they sit or what they like being at home and they like the routine that they have every day and so any change for them can kind of be seen as a as a threat really and what's it going to How's it going to impact them and how's it going to change their, their you know, their kind of habitual way of, of working, which they like and they know. And, you know, so th there has to be, uh, again, that understanding of the individual. And then, but the training can help them all understand each other's perspectives. Oh, so they're one of those that love it. There's someone I might need to help, and, you know, and let them understand there are some opportunities here. There might be a another part of the role that they really love that they haven't tried, you know, or some new skill they can pick up. So education around change is really, really important. I think, you know, through that, you can start to connect um, people to think about their own future in the midst of all this change. You know, what is it they want as they go forward through it and to try and um, embrace it? And I think, Will, earlier you talked about 
you know, people like to work within their comfort zones. So how do you help people stretch those comfort zones and really push the boundaries? And um, so that, that whole piece of education, I think, is really, really important. And then as they get more comfortable with that, they will start to look ahead, you know, getting them to think about, well, what does it mean for your career? What does it mean for your next step? What does it mean to your customer? How can you help your customers embrace it too? So as we've worked with some of our apprentices and students to think about this, they've gone on and worked with their customers to help them start to embrace change. So I do think taking the fear away um, and, and helping people understand that the emotions they're experiencing are really quite normal. Most people go through those. To understand that everyone's um, way of embracing change might be at a different pace and in a different way, all of that is important. So that's what I would be encouraging sales leaders to understand themselves and then to, to work with their teams to appreciate as well. Yep. Hey, um, perhaps to add to what Louise was saying, I think sometimes um, it's quite good to consider the question is, is, is what we are wanting to do, is it, is it change or is it transformation? Are we just trying to take our operating system or the way of working that we've currently got and make it better? Yeah, is that where the change is, is going to come or, or does it take a more profound shift of changing people's values and belief systems winning their hearts and minds, you know, i.e. approaching change from a cultural perspective. Um, and I think that quite often what you see when companies start to approach this topic of change is, you know, they're pretty good at mapping out, you know, what the new org structures need to look at, like in the new processes, and maybe they have teams of consultants helping them do that. Uh, but one of the things perhaps they, they don't look at so closely is... Um, winning hearts and minds. And I think if one is going to help people focus on change, it's, it's recognizing the difference between change and transformation and providing them the tools to be able to do that. <laughs> <laughs>